Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, April 12th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Protests erupting once again in Minnesota after a 20-year-old black man is killed by police during a traffic stop. This as the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin enters its third week, harrowing testimony so far as witnesses describe the final moments of George Floyd's life. And with the U.S. struggling with the U.K. variant of the coronavirus, record-breaking vaccinations over the weekend. On Saturday alone, 4.5 million people receiving their shots. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. Violence erupting once again on the streets of Minnesota, this time a Minneapolis suburb after a fatal police shooting. 20-year-old Dante Wright killed during a traffic stop. Protesters later taking to the streets as officials deployed the National Guard. Overnight, protests erupted in Brooklyn Center, a suburb of Minneapolis, after a fatal police shooting of a black man during a traffic stop. Police deploying tear gas to clear the crowds. The incident beginning just before 2 p.m. on Sunday when officers pulled a car over a traffic violation. According to the Brooklyn Center Police Department, the driver, who had an outstanding warrant, got back into his vehicle and an officer shot him. The man then drove several blocks before striking another vehicle. Police say paramedics attempted life-saving measures, but the driver was pronounced dead at the scene. Katie Wright, the mother of the driver who was shot, identified her son as 20-year-old Dante Wright. He called me at about 1.40 that he was getting pulled over by the police. And I said, well, why did you get pulled over? He said he had, they pulled him over because he had air fresheners hanging from the rear mirror. I don't want everybody out here chanting and screaming and yelling. I just want him home. That's it. Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz tweeting, Gwen and I are praying for Dante Wright's family as our state mourns another life of a black man taken by law enforcement. The incident happened about 10 miles from where former police officer Derek Chauvin is on trial for the killing of another black man, George Floyd. Before nightfall, protesters filled the streets, some of them seen here jumping on cars, even using cinder blocks to smash windows on a police vehicle. Others march toward the police department, leading to what the city's mayor describes as growing civil unrest. We had the Minnesota State Patrol, the Minnesota DNR, and the Minnesota National Guard, and the Minneapolis Police Department uh, all assembled to coordinate a response to uh, the crowds and the uh, damage that we were beginning to see at that point. Mayor Mike Elliott attempting to de-escalate the situation, tweeting, the officer shooting in Brooklyn Center today is tragic. We are asking the protesters to continue to be peaceful and that peaceful protesters are not dealt with force. However, officials say at least 20 businesses were damaged in Brooklyn Center alone during the unrest. Windows and doors were busted along this strip mall. More National Guard members and state law enforcement personnel are being deployed around the Twin Cities and in Brooklyn Center, in addition to personnel already in place for Chauvin's trial. 
Several school buildings in the area are also closed today. And that trial continuing today with more medical testimony. The judge this morning denying a request from defense attorneys to sequester the jury following last night's shooting of Dante Wright. Greater threat to our security. I think the better way is to just continue with the trial as we've been going. That that's a separate issue. They should treat it as such. It'd be a different story if it was civil unrest following another verdict where the jury can see what the consequence of a certain verdict might be in a similar case, but that's not this case. Judge Cahill right there said he expects closing statements in the trial to begin sometime next week. Joining me now is Kirk Burkhalter. He's a professor at New York Law School and a former NYPD detective. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, thank you. So Dante Wright was killed on Sunday by police during a routine traffic stop. Based on the evidence and what we know so far, what would you say went wrong here? Well, you know, what we, it's a lot of what we don't know is what went wrong. So first there is uh, this issue that this was a pretextual stop, uh, supposedly, right? This is what the mother has said because he had air fresheners hanging from his window and so forth. Now this is legal as per the Supreme Court, but is it legal in that, or is this usually the pretext to stop a person driving a car who is a person of color? So that's one. Second is that he had an outstanding warrant. Now people are issued, uh, there are warrants issued for people when they don't show up to court. So do we know if this was an outstanding warrant because he was wanted for some type of violent crime? That is actually unlikely. The vast majority of warrants are issued for people simply because they didn't show up to court, traffic violations, some other type of incident could have been domestic incident and so forth. That doesn't necessarily mean that this person poses a threat to society. So it would be interesting to find out what the nature of that warrant was. And then finally, with regards to the shooting, in and of itself, there seems to be a report that he was shot inside his vehicle. He was asked to step out of the vehicle and comply, got back in the car and attempted to elude capture. And then that's when he was fired upon. The point I'm making is, was he a danger to society? If that is the case, that he was shot while he was in his vehicle, and that seems to be the indi indication because the vehicle then uh, went several feet or yards and then it struck another vehicle and that's where he expired. Was he a danger? Was it necessary to shoot him, right? Was he someone that if the police released him, would he wreak havoc on society? And that may not necessarily be the case whatsoever. So what we see uh, over and over in these incidents, and let me make clear that there's a lot of information we don't know, but there appears to be bias against people of color, right? These types of incidents just don't happen to other Americans. And further, the authorities must put out some type of statement, video footage, right? We just can't leave the public in the dark with so many unanswered questions here. And specifically on the topic of race, when we just heard the officer in the other case state, yeah, 80% of the time we have a problem, it is people of color, it's minorities. So clearly there's some bias here. I'm sure we'll be receiving new information as the days go by. Now, as we saw earlier, the judge in George Floyd's murder case refused a defense request to sequester the jury after the shooting death of Dante Wright. Can you talk about this decision? Also, could it have an impact on the jury? Sure, so you know, juries tend to take their civic duty seriously. 
right? So if you talk to most jurors, it's not kind of willy-nilly and, oh, let me watch the TV and see what folks are saying on TV about the trial. They do take this uh, duty seriously. The judge will charge them at the end of the trial and tell them what they should consider and not consider. So on to your second question, is it a factor? Well, juries are human. They are, they, it's, you cannot unring the bell once they are aware of certain information. However, here's what, to, what's, what uh, you know, everyone should consider. This jury has spent now a full week, almost two weeks, I guess, of listening to testimony from witnesses and experts. They'll spend another week when the defense uh, puts on its case. So the comparison, a couple of news stories on these incidents versus sitting for eight hours or so every day, listening to all this testimony of all the experts and the witnesses and so forth, I think that we have to trust our jury system that these jurors understand and that they will weigh the evidence that they have heard. Further, it's not just these two incidents. If we think of everything that we've seen in the media and news reports prior to and since the death of George Floyd, all of America has been inundated with these stories. So even if we sequestered the jury, how do you extract all that information that they have seen over the last few months, over the course of their lives, with regards to this issue and implicit bias and the tension between the police and the citizens of color? So I think the judge made the right call here, and I think we can trust the jurors to be objective. Now let's switch over to the other incident we were reporting on, the one in Virginia. That police officer has been fired after using excessive force during a traffic stop involving a black army officer. What issues does that incident bring up for you? Well, first selection and who becomes a police officer, because the question often becomes, it goes towards training and education and some things you just can't train away or train into people, right? It starts off with this person. So looking at this kind of piece by piece, the first thing I'd like to focus on is the part of this stop where that man was no longer a threat. That army officer was no longer a threat. When he had his arms outside of his car, and I agree, car stops can be some of the most dangerous encounters that police officers have to face. But at one point, he has his, the car vehicle is stopped, he has his hands outside the window. And you are trained that people hurt you with their hands, not with their words or their eyes. So once his hands are out that vehicle, he is no longer a threat. That is the time to kind of de-escalate this situation. Clearly, he was upset, he was concerned. And if you've ever had a, point, a gun pointed at you, yes, it's very nervous, right? So it's the time for them to de-escalate this situation. Instead, the police intended uh, continued to escalate and macing him. That's an assault. And then there is the falsification of the report, right? The report the police officer filed conflicts wholly with the video camera footage. This man did not assault the police officer. Um, so, and then finally, this negotiation, what appears to be a negotiation at the end. I just spoke to my chief, and if you don't file a complaint, because that's basically what's being said, if you don't file a complaint, we will not arrest you. Well, there is no negotiation, right? Citizens have the right to file complaints, and if there's probable cause for an arrest, then the police should make an arrest. But this tit for tat and then getting into this conversation or engaging this conversation about the policing of minorities and how they complain, this is just really horrific, and it's a black eye uh, on those police officers who are executing their job with dedication and professionalism every day. I agree that this person had no business being a police officer. You cannot 
correct this. You cannot train this away. This is someone that has to be identified during the hiring process and determine if they harbor any of these biases. And there also has to be constant retraining or constant reintervention to identify if police officers have developed any biases or if there's anything that has been missed. This incident was completely avoidable, completely avoidable. And the feeling or the feeling that in some way this man had to explain why he caused the incident is particularly offensive. Well, it's very interesting to analyze each one of these cases. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective on what happened here. Kirk Burkhalter, New York Law School professor. Take care. Thank you. Take care. And in related police news, Maryland becomes the first state to repeal the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights in a major step towards police reform. Replacing the 47-year-old law is the Maryland Police Accountability Act, which places stringent guidelines on police use of force. The sweeping new law requires the use of body-worn cameras by law enforcement and puts limitations on the use of no-knock warrants. Police in Maryland can now also be subject to criminal charges if the use of force is against guidelines and results in death or severe injury. Republican Governor Larry Hogan disapproved of the legislation and vetoed three of the related police reform bills on Friday, but the legislature overrode all of his vetoes on Saturday. Now to the pandemic in America. Now to the pandemic in America. Healthcare workers in Michigan saying the virus is spreading there like a wildfire. The infection rate up almost 350% since February and the CDC ranking it the number one hotspot in the country right now. Lorraine Gassidis has more. Over the weekend, the U.S. shattering vaccination records again. On Saturday, 4.6 million Americans receiving a dose. Almost 73 million people now fully vaccinated. And at the current pace, 50% of U.S. adults will likely have received at least one dose by the end of this week. But despite the speed of vaccination, COVID cases still ticking upward. The current seven-day average rising consistently in the past month, but still nowhere near the numbers we saw in January. New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Michigan now accounting for about 42% of newly reported cases. In Michigan, 70% of new cases are related to the UK variant. The other day was 60 patients. There's eight to 10 hour waits. <clears throat> We don't have enough nurses. The governor there asking the White House to rethink its national vaccine distribution plan and send Michigan more doses. We are seeing a surge in Michigan, despite the fact that we have some of the strongest policies in place, mask mandates, capacity limits, working from home. We've asked our state for a two-week pause. So despite all of that, we are seeing a surge because of these variants. And that's precisely why we're really um, encouraging them to think about surging vaccines into the state of Michigan, and I'm going to continue to fight for the people of Michigan. 
The White House promising to send an additional 160 government personnel to help out with vaccinations, but for now, no promise of more vaccines. Meanwhile, across the nation, officials taking steps to avoid their own surges. In Los Angeles, residents ages 16 and above are now eligible to sign up for a COVID-19 vaccination at one of 19 vaccination sites currently being run by the city. The mayor making the move before the state's plans eligibility expansion next Thursday. In Kentucky, the governor announcing he will lift restrictions like social distancing and curfews once two and a half million residents there have gotten vaccinated. He's hoping to reach the goal within the next month. And with appointments opening up to more eligibility groups, Facebook is announcing that it is now going to include notifications for eligibility on their app. Um, the state of West Virginia is saying this is a very uh, effective tactic. They say the health department there says that they've seen an increase in vaccination registrations um, after Facebook announced this uh, new um, system in their app. They've been doing so since February for groups 65 and older. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Put on the floor on the American Rescue Plan the White House is under intense pressure to house the thousands of unaccompanied minors arriving at the southern border. Edwin Piti has the very latest from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Hi, Andrea. The Department of Homeland Security says they continue to work 24-7 to help and process the thousands of unaccompanied minors that are crossing the border. The pressure is on. They are running out of space, and there is a need to expand its capacity to care for 35,000 children. The numbers are daunting. According to CBP data, just in March, border agents encountered almost 172,000 migrants, nearly 19,000 were children, the largest number recorded in a single month. The government system is already over 100% capacity. That's why, in a desperate plea, the Department of Health and Human Services is asking federal employees if they would consider taking a four-month paid leave from their job to help care for migrant children in government-run shelters packed with new arrivals. But the White House could face another setback. The administration's border coordinator, coordinator is stepping down by the end of the month. Ambassador Roberta Jacobson, who was in charge of addressing the flow of migrants from Central America, is leaving her post on April 30th. The White House is saying that Jacobson had agreed from the beginning to only serve the first 100 days of the Biden administration and denied that she's leaving because Vice President Kamala Harris is taking over diplomatic efforts with those Central American countries. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has secured agreements with Mexico, Honduras and Guatemala to tighten their border and stem the flow of migrants. Those agreements are also looking into better ways of processing and accompanying minors safely and addressing the reasons why people migrate to the U.S. Live in Washington, D.C., back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Edwin, for all those details. And now, a shocking video of a migrant boy found wandering along the U.S.-Mexico border in the Rio Grande Valley surfaced last week. Since then, We've learned more about the 10-year-old Nicaraguan boy and about what his uncle described to you news as a terrifying journey to the United States that involved a dangerous encounter with kidnappers. Jonathan Mejia has the story. 
We know his name is Wilton Gutierrez, that he is Nicaraguan, and that this is the second time in two weeks that he has crossed the border into the United States. We now also know the reason for his tears and the terror in his face. Days before, he and his mother had been kidnapped in Mexico. They can kidnap me. They can rob me. That was immediate. She was caught, and she says that they treated her very badly. His uncle, Misael Obregón, who is his mother's brother, says that two weeks ago, the mother and son crossed the border into Texas. He says that his sister told him that they were both mistreated by U.S. immigration authorities and immediately deported to Mexico. They told her not to be wasting her breath, that they wanted nothing to do with her and to go back to her country to fix her problems. Something that Obregón admitted took him by surprise. I really didn't expect that because they always criticized Donald Trump for all the things and it turns out that they came out worse than Donald Trump. According to Obregón, an hour after arriving in Mexico, his sister and nephew were kidnapped at the border and the kidnappers called him demanding money. They called me from a number. I thought it was her and I answered the call and it wasn't her. And they asked me if I was her brother and I said yes. Obregón, who works in construction and has lived in Florida for five years, says the extortion amount was too high. Well, the truth is that I got a part of the money with my friends to free my nephew, and thank God they released him. But her? I don't have the money. A decision he has to live with. It is something ugly. I almost don't sleep. Obregón spoke with social workers in Texas to help get his nephew back. Meanwhile, Nicaraguan authorities have contacted the Mexican government to try to find the mother. Reported by Tiffany Roberts, this is Jonathan Mejia, U News. Meanwhile, on the U.S. side of the border, some migrants in Arizona receiving a welcome surprise, a hotel to rest from their journey as opposed to a detention center. Jorge Hernandez explains. Trailers loaded with supplies began arriving early in the morning at a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona, where ICE is housing hundreds of migrant families who were detained near the Arizona border with Mexico. Instead of being in a detention center, it is better to be in a hotel. Hopefully they're doing it right instead of what we have heard in the past, when they were placed in facilities where there were no bathrooms. In a statement, I said that they will provide temporary emergency shelter to families in their custody through a short-term contract with Endeavors, a Texas-based company. In the past, churches were often used to arrange housing for migrants. We saved the government a lot of money. For example, if they're now paying for hotels, those hotels were our homes. They were our families, homes, our churches. The 86.9 million contract will allow the families to stay in a hotel where they will receive coronavirus testing, as well as three daily meals, medical care, and legal assistance to navigate the immigration process. So many people are coming. We don't have the infrastructure or border patrol to respond. Sometimes we can't. Meanwhile, at the Yuma border crossing, volunteers set up a temporary aid center in a parking lot where U.S. immigration buses arrive with families. There, they give them food and provide coronavirus testing. Then they send them to shelters in Arizona or California. Reported by Oscar Gomez in Tucson, Arizona. This is Jorge Hernandez, U News. More of U News after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, Your World, You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Baseball fans across the country heading back to ballparks to cheer on their home teams despite coronavirus protocols. Kelia Tejada has a look at what opening day was like at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. Oh, muy contento, muy feliz. Very happy. Very happy to be back here, my second home, Dodger Stadium. Ready to make up for an 18 months absence. 15,000 Los Angeles Dodgers fans attended the opening game of the 2021 baseball season. With the intention of celebrating the World Series, the team won in the midst of the pandemic. We're looking forward to celebrate the championship that we didn't have the opportunity to celebrate last year. They're going to give them the rings. This Dodgers game against the Washington Nationals is the first mass public event to be held in Los Angeles since last April. I have not missed an opening day for about 12 years, and last year I missed it because of the COVID. The fans arrived aware of social distancing and hygiene measures that the new normal demands. Yes, two masks, my sanitizer and everything. With a maximum capacity of 56,000 people, the 15,000 fans in the stadium accounted for less than 25% of the crowd allowed by Los Angeles County Health Authorities. We all got vaccinated to be able to come. Reported by Jaime Garcia in Los Angeles, Kelia Tejada, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.